You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. Uh, I'm Sean Stevens, and today we're discussing the thorny issue of voluntary assisted dying. Uh, we're discussing it with palliative care Derek Ng and GP Oliver Lancey, who works with Dying with Dignity in WA. Welcome, Derek, and welcome, Alida. Thank you. Thank you. Now, across Australia, many states, including WA, are looking at the issue of voluntary euthanasia, and most states are using the Victorian legislation as their starting point. Alida, do you want to give us a brief description of how the Victorian legislation works at the coalface? Mm. Yeah, it's largely based on the Oregon model, which has been in, in practice for over 20 years where uh, an individual who's facing a terminal condition and is uh, uh, experiencing, in their view, unbearable suffering, um, can ask for assistance to die quickly um, with uh, medication ingestion, self-ingestion, um, if they've been assessed by two separate independent medical practitioners to have a limited prognosis from weeks to months to live, but not more than six months, and they need to have uh, been explained their palliative care options as well as their uh, other treatment options and they need to agree that they're not uh, to their satisfaction. So I think that's around yep. roughly what you're asking. Yeah. yeah, yep, that's right. So, okay, so it has been around for similar legislation in Oregon. In, in for Oregon, a while. yeah, and it's yeah. purely self ingestion. Self ingestion, uh, yeah. so. Yeah. yeah, that was something interesting that I found when I started looking into this. Everyone's got these views that it's a lethal injection, but it's actually a prescription that's in a locked container yeah. that yep. only the patient can, can open and access. Derek, or, did you or, or their contact person. Or their contact person, yeah. yeah. So Derek, did you have any uh, anything to add to Alida's description? Uh, look, so thank you, Sean and Alida, and it's great to be able to speak and express my views. And these are my views rather than the views of any of my organisations that I'm affiliated with. Um, look, I, I think what impresses me is the plight of the suffering and there's, as Alida and I spoke about earlier, there's certainly a lot of people suffering and the, the area of end of life care is, is particularly poignant and I think that what Alida's talked about is the sense of creating safeguards so that people primarily are competent and if they feel that they want to and want to exercise their rights and their uh, autonomous abilities, then they should be given those rights. Um, I guess my concern is that with any kind of safeguard, if we just go back to why euthanasia is an issue at the moment, it's, it's about people feeling as though their healthcare and their healthcare choices are not being met uh, and that the health system isn't able to cope with their suffering. And, um, and I guess if you think about it, the root of all of this is autonomy and human rights. And if you think about that, it, by placing safeguards, we then exclude a number of people who end up feeling that their rights aren't being met. Mm. And so this lends itself to the slippery slope argument where you've got people who, there, there are always going to be people who sit outside of those safeguards who are going to ask themselves why mm. and then ask everyone else why. You know, why am I unable to access these things? And that's what concerns me. Yep. It's where do you draw that line? If you draw it too tight, you're excluding a lot of people. If it's too loose, then it 
may be inappropriately well and if you if you really screw it down really tight like the victorian legislation it becomes very very difficult to implement in some respects it becomes very tricky Um, but at the moment the implementation committee will have to work at that but it becomes very tricky and i am concerned that the safeguards will eventually move um, and I think that's a lot of us are worried that that could happen and it it should happen really because you think about autonomy being the driver here and the rights of people who are suffering and the plight of people who are suffering it just makes sense that it has to move mm. you know over time are we going to include more and more people who are suffering mm. so my point is you know I'm here to promote palliative care I'm here to promote good care I'm here to make sure that people who need the care are cared for, and, and so is Al- Alida and, and all of us. I don't see that the law needs to change. Um, I think we just need to, we really need to care for the people who are entering the end of their lives better. Mm. And that's access, that's skill, yeah. that's, you know, that's all the things that we associate with good care. Mm. Yeah, look, that's a very good point. Elder, what Can do I you make a comment on Yeah, that? I was about to yeah, ask. I mean, yeah. My concern is, is that one, uh, that the medical profession deems to have the answer to all problems. And I think that because dying is not a medical problem, it's a natural process and it's a natural consequence of being alive. I think that to have the, um, the thought that medical care is the answer that fills the gap that now seems to be there. Um, I think that's not proven and um, most people who opt to have an assisted death in Oregon are enrolled in hospice program which is expert palliative care. So 90% in fact who opt to choose that have uh, expert palliative care under their, in, their, in their surroundings compared to only 60% uh, USA wide and also the, the the notion of the slippery slope argument, I mean, that's not occurred in other jurisdictions. And if that were to be the case, that would be a societal decision to decide whether they feel as a society, or we feel as a society, we want to include other people. And I know you're saying, look, this is the tip of the iceberg. Where do we stop? Well, society will decide where we stop. At the moment, there's no safeguards. There is no oversight, there is uh, no transparency, and it is essentially a medical practice um, which determines what options someone can, achieve, mm. can, can, can access. I think the argument there, Alida, from the people who argue against the change is mm. that this is a hard line. This is sure. the line, that I agree totally with you, and I think everyone agrees it is a very murky grey zone at the moment. But what is clear is this line between actually taking a life and um, easing suffering. That line is already not there. I mean, and that's not a line that's there at all. Um, Mm. In practice, uh, really, um, many palliative care interventions can have either a life-extending or a life-shortening effect. And I've talked to at least six doctors, Mm -hmm. two palliative care professionals who've admitted as such that they have, at their patient's request, intentionally hastened a person's death. So whether you like it or not, there is a need 
it is already being acted upon, but there is just no safeguards. No one mm. knows where it happens. Mm. So, so Derek, um, what do you say to that? That there is already this um, euthanasia happening, but it's it's operating in a grey, murky vacuum. Look, I, I think it's um, it's an argument that we have those who are pro and those who are anti legalization have, and um, it's one that probably still is. Is, is not going to have the evidence behind it that we're going to be able to argue strongly for or against. I think that, as, as we all know, we live in an environment where there are doctors of different abilities, doctors of different um, conduct, and I think that, I think unfortunately working in palliative care, I don't see the, I don't, you know, there's this whole concept of um, double effect that, you know, a lot of people go on about. and. It is certainly portrayed as something that is a very thin wedge that, you know, we're constantly walking on this double effect line. But um, those of us who practice end-of-life care well do not see it as a major issue all the time. I think if you have, um, I think if you want to... (coughs) If you want to give someone a dose of a medicine that will knowingly cause the person to die, um, I, I think you would you would be able to do that knowingly equally if your intention is to manage the symptoms rather than bring about death. Um, I don't. I, I think you can quite reasonably do that for you know. In my experience, a vast majority of mm-hmm. patients. I mean, nothing in medicine is going to be a hundred percent. Nothing in anything is a hundred percent. But I think that the way I practice, and I can only speak for myself, um, I'm far from the edge. Mm. You know, if, if the edge is that double effect edge, um, I know that when I give a drug, I know what the achievable effect is and I do it mm. safely. Um, I think what Alad is certainly talking about is, is that there are doctors who, this is a massive moral and practice clinical issue. And I know we'll talk about that soon. But when faced with a patient who's suffering and you're the person that they're coming to for help, it's, it's extremely difficult to feel helpless. Um, and I, I think we all did medicine for one reason. Most of us um, feel that we're here to, to do the best we can for the patient in front of us and for the family who are watching on. I think we, we need to make sure their suffering is managed. Mm. And I go back to training and I go back to skills and I go back to whole person care. You know, it's not just giving a medicine. It's about spiritual suffering. It's about social pressure, um, social burden, which we know in Oregon, that's a big issue for requesting euthanasia and not feeling like a burden, not feeling useless and helpless. Mm. Um, that, that is often an argument that people against euthanasia raise. Um, the people whether feeling that pressured to, uh, to, to take their own life um, by relatives, whether that pressure is real or imagined. Um, do you feel that might be an issue, Alida? Well, I've seen the opposite much more often, yeah. um, where people who really don't want more active intervention to it for potentially life-prolonging intervention are pressured by relatives to try just again, don't give up. You know, and that to me is a much, much b- bigger problem at um, you know, prolonging uh, suffering and uh, medically induced or etrogenic suffering is an enormous problem at end of life. 
Um, whether that's an issue, I think that um, when we're looking at that a person needs to, on three occasions, make their own request and makes it obvious to two independent medical practitioners that this is uh, what they request for themselves, I, I can't see how someone can say to that person, you need to request it because I want you to die sooner. I just don't see that that's possible. Mm -hmm. And no jurisdiction where that has been offered uh, over the last 25 years, it's been shown because um, you know, one of the advantages in, in jurisdictions where voluntary assisted dying is legal is that there are an enormous amount of data available. Who accesses this? Who doesn't access this? What are their circumstances? What are their socioeconomic status? Um, so we know what happens there and we know why. And it's just not been one of those issues that's come uh, come mm. across. Okay. Yeah, but I don't I don't think one can be a hundred percent in anything. Just sure. like our our treatment interventions cannot possibly relieve all human suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Derek, did you have any thoughts on the pressuring issue in particular? Look, uh, there's not a day that goes by that a family member um, of, so that a patient says that they don't feel like a burden. I think patients always feel like a burden, um, particularly if they have family and they feel that they have family that they care about. Um, and equally, families always say that no, they're not. And, and so I think that'll never mm. be taken away and it's a complex issue mm. where it's, it's not measurable. You know, we all mm. do things if we have family and people we care about around us. We all do things that are better for them than us. Mm. You know, how do you measure that? How do you measure the size of that effect on your decision making? Yep. You know, and, and I think there are some safeguards that the Victorian law and all the other jurisdictions around the world that, that you know, make sure that patients repeatedly and consistently feel that this is the only way that, they, that is for them if they decide on euthanasia or assisted dying. Um, there are all sorts of safeguards, I think, to look at how we can better guard against a sense of yeah. burden. But I think that sense of burden is, is certainly huge and it, it will never go away. Mm. I think it's, it's mm. always present. Thank you. Yep. So finally, um, as a professional college, um, we have and we need to make sure that our members are, are protected and our profession needs to make sure um, both palliative care physicians and GPs are protected in this. If this le legislation were to come in, Derek, what things do you think as a profession we should insist upon? Well, I, I think the big one that everyone has on the tip of their tongue is the right of conscientious objection. You know, as doctors, we have always reserved that right. And if we talk about patient autonomy, then we have equal, I guess, weight in autonomy to say this is not something we feel we want to do. Um, so I think that's extremely important and coercion of doctors to do it is, is, is what I think we need to be careful of. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's a whole lot of legal uh, protections for doctors that I think, as the Victorian legislation has shown, will need to be reviewed and enhanced and, and clarified. But I think the big one for doctors I'm worried about is, is the whole mental health issue and the self-care issue. Mm. You know, if, uh, no doubt there'll be doctors who will be willing to perform the act when it's legalized. And um, we know certainly from vet veterinary research that vets who are certainly very much day in, day out in involved with euthanasia, there's a sense of burnout. And, um, 
uh, and a significant one. I think we need to support each other as a profession mm. and be speaking very clearly about how it affects us. And yeah. mm. I, I've seen that firsthand. My wife's a vet. And um, yeah, when she comes home after a particularly difficult euthanasia, you know, she will be in tears sometimes. So it does, it, it is something that does have an effect on the practitioner as well as the patient. That's absolutely right. Alida? Yeah, I would, I would totally agree with that. And I think, uh, you know, um, debriefing and structures in place for moral support are essential. Um, which, um, yeah, I agree with that. And I certainly also feel that conscientious objection needs to be integral. I don't think anyone uh, should be forced to do anything that they have, don't feel is part of their role as a medical practitioner or is, uh, is against their moral judgment. Um, I do, however, believe that no person should not have access to good information about mm -hmm. all their options, including uh, treatment options, palliative care options, as well as the potential option of a voluntary assisted die, uh, death. So uh, I think that uh, what I would hope to be um, coming in place is, is, is a, um, a dedicated website where uh, objection doctors could refer the person to and says, look, it's not part of my cup of tea. I can't help you with that. But this is a website where you can actually find the information you need if that's what you want to explore. So I think that would be, um, yeah. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alida and Derek. And I think I've been surprised uh, about the amount of furious agreement on so many issues. So thank you very much for your time. <laughs> and uh, I wish you all the best in this continu continuing debate. Thank you, Sean. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks.